We are excited to have Nathan Rittenhouse here this morning, and then he will also be here uh, this evening and Monday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday night. Uh, Nathan is from, well, he's from West Virginia, but uh, he is a speaker with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and he has, he and his wife have four children, seven, five, three, and six months, and so that's exciting. Um, I'm sure those are exciting, uh, exciting times for, uh, for him. And I uh, have his little bio here. He's graduated from uh, Bridgewater College in Virginia with a double major in physics and philosophy and religion and a minor in mathematics. So he told me earlier this morning in the first service, he didn't skip a whole lot of classes like I've been giving you. The, you know, thing. That's, that's, that's a pretty impressive resume there. I uh, attended the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics and he holds an MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And you're going to very much enjoy what Nathan has to share with us from God's word, not only this morning, but hopefully you can come back tonight and this next few uh, nights this week. So, Nate, come on up, brother. Thank you. Yep. Well, it's uh, good to be with you here this morning. I hope you got some breakfast. I think it was uh, Winston Churchill that said, uh, speaking after a meal is the art of learning to talk in someone else's sleep. So hopefully that's uh, not, not the case here this morning, but we'll see how it goes. I was thinking they always offer the coloring sheets to everybody except the person preaching. Um, and that would be interesting to see how that would go also. But it's a real pleasure for me to be here. And it's a lot of fun for me to work with RZIM. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries tagline is helping the thinker believe and helping the believer think. And I get to travel and speak at a lot of universities and colleges and forums and churches and retreats, um, kind of analyzing the big questions that people have about life and then oftentimes uh, taking questions and answers from the audience. And we're certainly going to do that in our evening services throughout this week. But I wanted to speak uh, overall theme for the week is um, does Christianity matter or why does Christianity matter and we'll work through uh, a number of different stages of that in each of the uh, four upcoming talks and the reason that I'm excited about that is that often things that are true you can't just address in 30 minutes you have to stretch that out a little bit and some of the things that are true you have to live a whole lifetime to figure out and for me being part of a local congregation is a beautiful thing because I can kind of look 10 years down the road into the lives of those who have gone before me, and it stabilizes me to look at the way that the community has processed and handled um, reality of the way the world is around me. It's not all up to me. And so I'm a, a part of New Hope Church of the Brethren uh, in um, Dunmore, West Virginia, and part of the preaching team there. There are five of us um, that uh, bounce around kind of between three congregations, and that's a, a fun model for us to do that in that way. Uh, RZIM has 97 speakers in 15 different countries. There's great diversity there, but they didn't have any bearded brethren dudes from West Virginia. So I fill that slot that was clearly missing on their roster of speakers, and I'm, I'm happy to bring that cultural diversity to um, their organization. I was at a, um, a meeting oh, a year or so ago, and it was a church meeting, and people were going around the circle kind of giving their testimonies and talking about why they were Christians. And it struck me that nobody said they were a Christian because it was true. Now, they probably believed that it was true, but they didn't give that as a, as a default answer. I mean, it reminded me of something that one of my bosses and colleagues, Michael Ramsden, said that oftentimes when you ask somebody why they're a Christian, they won't tell you why they're a Christian, they'll tell you how they became a Christian. So you ask somebody, why are you a Christian? And you hear something like, oh, you know, it was a rough time in life. I met these really nice people at work. They invited me to their small group. They had good coffee and fellowship. And I enjoyed that community, and I joined their church. And he said, that's fine, except that's exactly the same way you join a cult. Um, you know, rough time in life, met some nice people. They had good community and Kool-Aid, and, you know, there we go. Um, 
so there's a way in which we kind of naturally lean into something like, well, it just felt right. Um, you know what I'm saying there? We don't, we don't really necessarily, when we think about our faith, always think about things in terms of is it true or not. And so as we work through this week, I, I'm going to talk about the, the beauty and the emotion and the joy of the Christian life, but I think it's worth us taking time just to step back this morning and lay some uh, foundational groundwork on the concept of truth. That what I believe to be true and why I'm a Christian is because it's true, not because it makes me feel good. It does that too, but I think it was Lewis who said if you just wanted something to make you feel good, you could probably find that in a bottle or something. You know, there's, there's much more to it than that. There's truth. And so this morning we want to talk Christianity matters for the world, Jesus, science, and the human heart. And it was a year or two ago that the Oxford English Dictionary, every year they pick a word of the year, pick the word post-truth as the word of the year because that was now the most accurate description of our culture, that we've moved into an era that is beyond truth. Not so much in the sense that we don't think there's truth, that we just kind of don't care, or we couldn't know it even if it was out there. Uh, and so we've sort of thrown up our hands and said, on truth. Now, as a Christian, I have uh, some counter thoughts on that, and I think actually we don't live that way functionally and practically at all. We might be in a post-integrity culture, but we're certainly not in a post-truth culture. We deeply care who said what, did Trump or did Trump not. I mean, that's like what the news is about, right? What's true? We want to know that. And so we function in that way of deeply depending on the realities of what is actually true. At the same time, seeing people using truth more as a functional, pragmatic, you know, it's the elf on the shelf idea. As long as it works and you can manipulate your kids with it, it's fair enough. It's the placebo effect of medicine. Um, whatever works, there's a pragmatism to it. The problem is, is that when you get down to really complicated and complex problems, the heavy heartedness of life, truth starts to matter. It's not good enough to say, um, I don't really know if my wife loves me or not, but as long as she acts like she does, I don't care. You know, well, my kid's sick, just give him a medicine. It doesn't matter which one. You know, it's when you get down to that level of practicality, truth starts to become pretty interesting for us. And so as we think about this, um, discipleship is not a matter of practical life. When you look at what Jesus' disciples went through, they didn't think, man, this is a great long-term investment plan. I'll probably get killed. Sign me up. You know, so the truth of the gospel has to be based on something more than our convenience or more than the pragmatism uh, that comes from it because it can kill you. Now, in order to talk about our faith being true and something that's well thought out, we have to ask ourselves the question of how do you decide if something's true in the first place? And very uh, often we don't think about truth as a positive statement. We think about it more. I hear the phrase, that's not true more often than I hear this is true as a, as a statement. But when we're deciding whether or not something is true, what are the categories? How do you do that? What's your framework? And you would say, well, some stuff is pretty straightforward, common sense. You can just kind of figure that out. Um, one of those is, is if somebody tells you something, does, it, does the story make sense? It's how uh, a court scene works, right? The lawyers are poking at the witnesses to say, does their account of the story match up? Does it have internal consistency? Do all the times and the places and the people fit together? Does it make sense? How does the story fit? You could talk about that more technically as the internal coherence of the story. Does it make sense? If you said, if I said, I have a friend whose name is Bill, he's a bachelor, and his wife's name is Susan, you're going to say, that's not true. Like, it has a, a fundamental internal disconnect. Somebody once handed my wife a tract on the street that said, all of, all of reality is an illusion, and only through this proper form of Korean meditation can you know the truth. Well, that's a fascinating thing to write down, because that would mean that this is an illusion, and there's no way for me to know whether or not this is true. Um, and you just start asking questions like that of pushing back into it gently of you're taking it apart and saying that your story doesn't make sense here. Now, in some of the deep questions that we have about our faith, oftentimes it's a question about what God is like. Why would a good God allow suffering? 
there seems to be a contradiction in that story, right? And so it's a question about the internal consistency of it, and that's why we're laying the groundwork here this morning for our concepts of truth, because for the rest of the week, we're going to need to point back to this. So does it make sense? You guys know how this works. That's common sense. On the flip side of that, though, is that just because something, a story makes sense that has internal consistency does not mean that it's true. All fantasy and fiction has great internal consistency and coherence, but that doesn't make it true. I, I use the example often of uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings in Middle Earth. J.R. Tolkien writes this hugely complex uh, world in his mind, and the, and the people and the places and the not people, um, things all fit together in a coherent way. But why do I not think that's true? Well, I've never been out for a morning jog and been chased by an orc, right? So it doesn't correspond to reality, and that's the second thing you need. It can't just have internal coherence. It actually has to correspond to the world that we live in in a practical way of saying, yes, that actually is how I see the world. That applies. That makes sense. When I open my front door in the, new, in the morning or I open the newspaper or whatever, this is what the world looks like. I, I have experience with this. So it has to have internal consistency, and it has to correspond to reality, but also, just as it can't have internal consistency and not correspond, it can't just correspond and not have consistency. Um, the world doesn't, isn't true just based off of what you can directly observe. Um, there are other pieces of information that you have to take into account to be clear about that. So for something to be true at a foundational level, we would say it needs those two things, internal consistency and correspondence to reality. Now, I would submit that there's a, a third part to that, which is the livability of it of, does this actually change my life? Uh, and so I was picking on Eric this morning of saying, if, you know, if Eric comes to me and says, hey, Nathan, guess what? I have a blue bicycle. My neighbor has a blue bicycle. I'm going to say, sweet. But I'm not going to go out of my way to go figure out whether or not that's true, because whether or not his neighbor has a blue bicycle has zero impact on my life, as far as I can tell, in any practical way. So it might be true, but it doesn't change my life. And people often want to say, well, is the Christian faith rational? And that's a good question, but the starting question is, what difference would it make if it were true? Because if it doesn't make a difference, then it's not worth me investing the intellectual and emotional energy into finding out if it's true if it's not going to make a difference. Um, Great irrelevant example is that there, uh, there's an ice giant surrounding Saturn called Titan. And the gravity is so low there and the atmospheric pressure is high enough that if you were there with a hand glider and with flippers, you could fly under human power. How neat is that? You'd also freeze to death instantly, but that's a minor detail. Um, that's something that's... Nobody teaches these cool things in school anymore. I don't know why. But it's because it doesn't matter, right? It's true, but it doesn't change your life. And so there's a sense in which for something to be truly meaningful and to really matter, it needs to not just be true in a, in a neat idea kind of way, but deeply impact our lives. And so I think as you're thinking through those categories, maybe it's a bit of different vocabulary, but you would say, yeah, that's kind of common sense. That's how I decide whether or not something is true, even if I do that subconsciously. So we have that kind of idea of truth as we're trucking along through history, and then we run into the person of Jesus, and he has some interesting things to say, and it causes us to pedal just a second here back and say, okay, wait, hang on, what's going on? And let me read to you from John chapter 14. Um, this is what Jesus says. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. 
Thomas pops his hand up. Interruption. Time out, Jesus. That's a paraphrase there. Um, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And so what's interesting here is that Jesus takes the concept of truth from an intellectual set of ideas and says, I am the truth. And it's kind of neat as we think about that coherence, correspondence, livability, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's a, a neat way in which that kind of maps together where he's saying that I hold all of reality together and I make the most sense of it, and it's the fullness of life that I'm offering. That's a, that's a whole sermon in and of itself there. But then he's saying that the truth is not neutral. What is the purpose of truth according to this passage? No one comes to the Father but by me. So the purpose of truth, according to Jesus, is to put us in relationship with God. That is the trajectory on which all truth included, embodied in Jesus himself brings us to. The things that you know that are true are not just neat things for you to know in case you're ever on jeopardy. It's for you to live a life that puts you into relationship with God. There's a destination. There's an agenda. There's a trajectory to truth that Jesus is inviting us into. There's a purpose to it. The truth matters because it puts us in communion with God where we find the purpose for our life and rest for our troubled souls. So, as a Christian, that sounds good, but as soon as you stand up in public and say that, you're going to get pushback on at least two categories within that. And the first one is, is that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's incredibly exclusive. And what we do when we don't like something that's exclusive, we say, well, that's an arrogant claim. Isn't Jesus fundamentally arrogant? Isn't it arrogant for you as a Christian to say that you have the only way? And a couple of thoughts there. Um, first of all is that I like to ask, arrogant compared to what? Um, Buddha rejected Hinduism. Hinduism rejects naturalism. Naturalism certainly doesn't see the same thing that Muhammad saw. It, it, compared to what? Who I mean, everybody disagrees with everybody. That's why it's a different religion. If, it was, if we didn't disagree, there wouldn't be a... So there's that logical part of it. Then the second part of that is, is that it's only arrogant for Jesus to claim that if it isn't true. If the person who's the fastest in the world at running 100 meters says, I am the fastest in the world at running 100 meters, is that arrogant? No. It's just he's or she's the fastest person in the world at running 100 meters. It's, it's a description of reality. It's not a, an arrogant thing if it is true. You have to have the foundation of truth there. And then the other one here is when people say, well, it's arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way. The question we need to ask back is the only way to what? And Jesus says, I'm the way to the Father. And he is actually the only person who is offering that. No other religious system offers you intimate relationship with your creator. And in fact, doing, even suggesting that is possible is straight up blasphemy in the majority of the world's religions. So when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but by me, he's not another kid on the corner with a different color kickball. He's talking about an entirely different system. He's the only one in that category. You can't have an arrogant claim if you're the only one in that category. For example, when I say I'm Nathan Rittenhouse, I don't usually get a lot of boos and shouts and hollers from the audience of like the audacity of him to claim to be himself. Um, because nobody else is claiming to be here, or claiming to be me. Now, if somebody here is claiming that, well, you should talk afterward. Um, but uh, you see the point there? You didn't sense that as a, a kind of spine-tingling vitriol at my arrogance of claiming to be Nathan. 
Uh, in the same way, Jesus is in a totally different category here. And so the, the shot of, well, Christianity isn't true because it's arrogant doesn't make sense by any measure of the actual logic of the reasoning there. But it also isn't true because it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is that Jesus isn't competing with the other religions of the world. He's talking about something totally different. So we can set the arrogance one aside. The second thing then is to come back and say, well, when Jesus makes a statement, that isn't true because it's not a scientific claim. And only scientific claims are true, which is slightly problematic because that statement, only scientific claims are true, isn't a scientific statement, uh, which is worth keeping in mind. That comes in handy sometimes. But what we've, what we've kind of gradually um, put ourselves on culturally as a trajectory of saying, unless it's empirically verifiable as a scientific fact, then it isn't true. Everything else is outside of that. And it, and it generates some kind of funny thinking when we run that to, their lo- to its logical conclusions. I was giving a talk at um, MIT to a student group once on the meaning of life and talking about why questions and the reason we ask why and purpose questions. And at the end, one of the students raised their hand and said, I don't even understand why you would ask why questions. And I said, well, maybe you can help me. You just did. Um, and everybody kind of laughed, but then I stopped and said, wait a second, actually his question makes a lot of sense because it highlights a truth here that if you're thinking about naturalism, you're talking only about what is and how does it work. You're not asking about who did it or why did they do it. You're not looking for agency and purpose, you're just describing what is. And so naturalism actually has a very truncated, narrow view of humanity because it's reducing it all down into a category of mechanisms, hows and whats, and isness. And the, the idea that pops into my mind there comes from, um, you might have taken, read some Greek myths in your uh, educational courses, I don't know, and maybe remember the story of Procrustes. And if you're thinking that somebody's going to die in this story, you're absolutely right. Um, or it wouldn't be Greek mythology. So Procrustes has, a, has an inn along the side of the road. Travelers come along. And let's say he has, a, he has a bed. And let's say it's made out of metal, and it's six feet long. And every traveler that stops to spend the night at his inn, he forces them to fit into that bed. So if you show up and you're six foot six, just chops six inches off of you, and you fit perfectly in bed. If you show up and you're five foot six, put you on the rack, stretch you, you're six feet tall now and dead, but you fit into the bed, right? And so everything is, there's a predetermined standard, and everything has to fit within those boundaries and those borders. And now we use that phrase of Procrustean bed to say that there's a predetermined set of facts and reality, and everything has to fit perfectly within those boundaries. And that's scientism. Science in itself and what it can do and what it claims for itself is, is great. It's wonderful and beautiful. But when we start saying that all of human reality and the things that are true have to fit within this parameter, a lot of stuff gets chopped off and a lot of stuff gets stretched into a shape that ultimately kills what it means to be human. And so naturalism does not bother me because of the answers that it gives. It bothers me because of the types of questions it doesn't allow me to ask. I have questions as a human that go outside my carbon structure as a mammal. Does that make sense? So I fully embrace everything that science has to offer us. It's just that what it has to offer us is not a snapshot of all of reality. On the flip side, we can do the same thing theologically if we try to take everything in life and make it a biblical example Um, it'll appear that the Bible comes up short because the Bible isn't trying to answer every single question. The book of Numbers is no help at all for calculus. Um, It just doesn't work like that. Um, But that's not what it's trying to do. Leviticus helps me, doesn't help me change oil in a truck. You know, but that's not the purpose of what Leviticus is doing. And so just as scientists shouldn't try to cram everything into the science world and should listen to the theologians speaking there, the theologically, biblically minded people should also recognize 
what the Bible is trying to do and not fit everything else back into that. And when you come to it with that posture, it really opens up a very nice conversation um, between those categories of life. And maybe some of those questions will come up this evening or later in the week as we talk about that. But it's the, the longings of the human heart that go outside of what I can chemically reduce myself um, to, the experiences, the questions, um, my acknowledgement of being an emotional creature, of the way that we really think and the way we really make decisions, while at the same time recognizing that there are structures of truth around us that are important, always left me in sort of a, um, a tight spot of making good decisions because you... I guarantee you have seen people make bad decisions before who really thought they were doing the right thing. Um, and you have made decisions in your life that, looking back on it, you knew weren't the right thing. So how then do we actually decide, even if there is a parameter of truth, how do we set up a, a system where we can safely experience emotions without them leading us in the wrong direction? And so uh, the, the story that I often share that kind of illustrates how my mind was trying to work with this that isn't necessarily a good idea is from the way that I proposed to my wife. And if you're thinking about proposing to somebody, I wouldn't necessarily go this route with it. Um, but this is just what happened, and I'll, sh I'll show you how this makes sense. So I was 23, and I knew people who had been married for like 65 years. So I said to my wife, or not my wife at the time, but I said to her, um, look, here's the deal. I think I know what it means to say that I love you but I know people have been married for a whole lot longer, and I'm sure they know more about what love means. So as far as what I can possibly know, it means to say, I love you, I love you. But I said, I'm confident enough in who you are that I'm willing to be committed to you based off of your character for the long term, and then we'll let the love grow within that commitment and find what that truly means. Not the most romantic pitch ever, but... Uh, it worked. There, but the reason that I was so awkward about it is that I was worried about this idea that of, of watching people who have a commitment that's based off an emotion, and then when the emotion disappears, then the commitment is gone also. So I wanted a commitment based off of a confidence and a character, and then to allow the emotion to flourish from that. So to have the commitment precede the emotion. And I think the same thing is the safe way in which we fully worship God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength is that we have an intellectual commitment to the things that I believe as a Christian are because they're true, not because they feel good to me. Now, there is a wonderful boatload of emotion that comes then along in worship falling and flowing out of that commitment to God, but my commitment to God is not based off of that emotional experience. They're both there, but the order of them drastically matters in the stability and the longevity of the faith that we're proclaiming and the way in which we live our lives because Confession here, um, most of you, so I'm putting myself in this box and you can join me if you want, probably don't live on this total cloud nine mountaintop spiritual uh, no breath hallelujah, ah, you know, spiritual plane. If you do, let's talk about that. That's interesting. Um, most of you probably have more of an undulating and if you have more caffeine, it's probably more like this. I don't know how that all works out. But there's an ebb and a flow and there's a rhythm of what it means to be human and there's a biological chemical part to us and there's a spiritual part to us. And for me in the ebbs and flows of life, it is massively stabilizing for me to know that I have a faith that is true, independent of the way that I feel about it. That I can lean back into that, the, the solid nature of it, even when it doesn't feel true. And if that's you, if, if I'm describing me and I'm describing you, we're in good company because the Psalms function in this exact same way. Think about how many of the Psalms start out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me all the way down through all kinds of my life is just miserable. It's a dumpster fire. That's kind of the general opening phrase of a lot of the Psalms. Uh, woe is me. 
And then what does the psalmist do? David says, but you know what? God has always been faithful to the people of Israel. He's been faithful to his covenants. He's been faithful to his commitments. He's been faithful to his promises to Abraham. He's been faithful to his people. I can look back over history and see God's goodness. Oh, and you know what? I'm part of that people that he is faithful to. And that means that if God is faithful to this group of people and I'm part of that group of people, then God is faithful to me too. And then the end of the psalm is him, what? Praising the Lord. And so all of those are just, it's just fascinating to look at that cycle in the psalms of woe is me, but God, I remember God's been faithful and that puts my feet on a solid rock moving forward. It's actually a faith that looks backwards in order to get its foundation of hope for the future. And we'll talk about that on a different night. But that's the trajectory of the, the stability and the logic and the rationality of the psalmist's faith puts him in a different spot emotionally by the time he gets done thinking through that. It doesn't, by any stretch of imagination, negate the actual difficulty. It takes the suffering and the seriousness of it for what it really is. Jesus doesn't say, do not let your hearts be troubled because actually they can't be. It's all an illusion. No, your heart really can be troubled. That's why Jesus said that that's categorically possible. We're taking the reality of the world as it really is, but we're taking the reality of God as he really is, independent of what I think about him, and then we're basing the stability of the commitment that we have off of that, and then the emotion is free to flow from that. As I look at the big questions that people have about life, uh, there are all kinds of different topics and themes. I say the S's are big right now, sex, science, suffering, suicide, significance, satisfaction. Um, but if you look at the, the actual practical questions that people ask, Ravi says that the, they kind of all come down to four, and I tend to agree with him on that, that really questions about origin, where do we come from, questions about meaning, what's the purpose of my life, questions about morality, how do we behave, how do we get along, and then questions of destiny, where are we going. And at different phases of life, different experiences, we ask those questions in different degrees of interest in those different categories as they go along. For me, in order for Christianity to be true and for it to give a satisfactory answer as a Christian, I'm looking for something that can answer all four of those questions deeply. In fact, I want the best answers that I can possibly find in all four of those categories, origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And for me, hands down, Christianity answers all of those categories better than anything else that I've come across in this world. It's not enough, however, for just to answer all four of those questions deeply. It has to answer all four of those questions deeply in a way that it doesn't contradict itself in the other categories. So a counterexample would be if you take like naturalism, for example, as a description of origin, it's very difficult to go from a naturalistic description of origin to a coherent vision of morality. How do you get from there's not a purpose to this is what you should do? You see, there's a disconnect there between those categories. And what I'm claiming, the bold claim that I'm making, is that Christianity is the simplest explanation of the complexity of the world that we see, that answers the questions that we have as humans to their depth, but also in a way that is consistent across the categories. It's really a, a beautiful way of thinking which I think would make sense if there's a God who gave us minds to worship him with and asked us to worship him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love him with that part of us. And so there's a sense there in which our life experiences um, get better. Uh, one of my grandpas often said to me that the Christian life is like going in a funnel backwards. <laughs> it starts off really small, but then the farther you get into it, the broader and the wider it gets, the more beautiful, the more complex, the, the broader the vista is. 
Because what happens is when you only have one, one experience, one datum point, it's easy to have a theory that covers one, you can come up with anything. But as you start to have these different experiences in life, you start to recognize what is the thing that makes the most sense of the fullness of what it means for me to be human, to have a physical body, to live in a physical world, to be a spiritual creature, to have relationships, to have the desire to have relationships with other people and something that transcends myself. And so when Jesus shows up, he's not making a problem and then answering it. He's addressing a problem that already existed that the human heart, I love that old hymn, uh, O Holy Night, where it says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. That there was a, a heaviness that Jesus is then speaking into and saying, the thing that you're seeking, I am he. He's answering a real question that's really true about reality. And I've often given um, freshman undergrads a hard time, especially the ones who don't know whether or not they exist. That's a really fun group of people to work with, um, especially when they're trying to figure out who it is that's actually asking them the question. Um, of, and, and it is an interesting philosophical problem. If you're not sure whether or not you exist this morning, come talk to me afterward. I have some ideas on that. But you don't, if you take that person and give them 10 more years of life, and they have a wife and two kids and a mortgage and a job, their biggest question in life is no longer whether or not they exist. Let's just put it that way, because the additional life experience has a way of slapping you around a little bit. And I think reality does that too, that God speaks to us through and grows us and puts us in a way of understanding. And at some point we get to the point of saying, oh, the thing that I'm seeking is the thing that Jesus answers. I want to read um, just a little bit here from Psalm 43 for you as we bring this to a close. And this is interesting for me because... Um, I just thought of this this morning, um, right before I came over here, and to listen to, to, to kind of prove my point about the way that the psalmist makes sense of the world and the longings, where he starts off in, in Psalm 43, he says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against the ungodly nation. Rescue me from deceitful and wicked men. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? There's injustice in the world, there's brokenness, everybody's after me, I feel relationally distant from you, God. Um, why must I go about mourning, oppressed by my enemy? Has anybody ever here ever felt kind of a little bit in the doldrums of life? I mean, this is a pretty poetic description of hitting the bottom. And then this is his plea in that moment. Send forth your light and your truth and let them guide me. Here's the brokenness of the world. Here's the brokenness of my relationship with you, God. Send forth your light and your truth and let them guide me. I need your help here. And that's the pregnant pause of history. And then Jesus shows up and says, I am the light of the world. I am the truth. A heartfelt cry of humanity for light and truth to come and guide. And then this is where is interesting with what Jesus says, right? He's, and so let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain. Jesus is saying, you know the place where I'm going. How do we get to the place where you're going? You're going to be with the Father. How do we get there? I am the way. Bring, let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. I'm going there that you may be there with me. The intense withness is the trajectory of the truth here, and it's a longing of the human heart. And what's fascinating to me is that when the truth of that then is solidified, the byproduct of knowing the truth is worship. The byproduct of the commitment is the joyful emotion. The byproduct of knowing that it's true gives a safe expression to the, the heartfelt um, hallelujah that erupts from within me. So he knows that. We bring me to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar. Oh, God. 
the worship, and actually a lot of hymns function in that same way. You sing a line of theological truth, and then the chorus is a heartfelt response in reply to the truth you just sang. That's kind of how the Psalms work. It's how our hymns work. You sing the truth, and then you say hallelujah in response to the true thing. So the truth happens in worship. Then I will go to the altar to my God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with a harp, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. The music leaders are going to come up, and we're going to sing a song. And I was really blessed this morning as I was thinking about that idea. And I walked in, and they were preparing the closing song, uh, which is, Oh, Come to the Altar. And I already had it in my notes, but that idea of David writing here in the psalm of, Once I know the truth, and you put me in proper relationship with yourself, and I understand that, then I will go to the altar, and I will worship. And so the point of the message this morning is very simple. It's that the things that you believe religiously are not in spite of the truth, but because of the truth. That there really are things that are true and false in this world, and that knowing the truth will set you free. Uh, A different place we're going to go later this week. But this idea that we start off recognizing the brokenness of the world, a need for God to reveal himself through his light and to guide us, Jesus stepping in to fulfill that role, and then putting us in a proper relationship with God leaves us in a place where we can genuinely worship. And so it's a delight for me to serve a God who understands us, but who is also interested in revealing himself to us in a way that makes sense in our minds. And so may that be a blessing to you that you serve the God of all truth. Amen.